90% of all scientists that have ever been alive are alive today. That's a lot of information, but don't panic. It's not an exact science. Good morning, Shannon. How are you? I'm great, John. How are you doing? Oh, I'm doing pretty good. Got a cup of coffee here and watching it snow outside. Oh, it is not snowy here. As usual, it's about 50 degrees, so it's nice and warm here in <laughs> Oklahoma in January. Right. Well, yeah, this was uh, the warmest year on record, they said. Yeah, I saw that. NASA put out a really cool visualization uh, showing the Earth temperatures throughout 2014. I imagine that our increased amount of sensors and technology has helped make monitoring the temperatures an easy task now, right? Yeah, absolutely. And with, you know, the Internet of Things, which I'm sure we'll talk about at some yes. point, uh, it's really becoming an interesting thing. And of course, we'll link that visualization in uh, in the show notes for you guys as well. But uh, so what have you been up to this week? Oh, just it's our second week of classes here at school. And so we've been getting ready for that. I'm actually teaching in a technology intensive classroom here at our university. It's a really neat concept that a lot of universities are using now, and it's called active learning. Yeah, we've got an active learning classroom here as well. Uh, so I'm sure we'll talk about that as well. Yes, we sure but, will. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, but I think you've been doing some cool stuff lately. I saw on your website, right? Right. So this last week, I actually got around to processing some data that I had collected back in October as part of kind of a hobby project uh, that involved a police radar and rain. John, I think you're the only person that would think of using a police radar to clock raindrops. So what, what, what were you doing? Trying to find speed? I, I, don't, I don't quite understand yet. Yeah, that's exactly <laughs> it. So I got this 1970s police radar on eBay and modified it so that I could plug it directly into a computer and record the Doppler output. Uh, so I put this in uh, basically a trash can with some Walmart bags over the top of it <laughs> <laughs> and set it outside and recorded the Doppler uh, of all these raindrops that were falling as a really nice actually series of two squall lines came through. So in the post, you can see all kinds of things. Uh, I looked at the reflected power and actually clock the speed of the raindrops and show that the distribution is really exactly in line with what cloud physics predicts. Oh, wow. That's kind of awesome. And a super cheap alternative to building your own phased array radar, right? <laughs> right. So uh, it doesn't give you quite as much information. I would like to do some more modification. And I was really hoping that this snow that we've got this morning would let me clock snow speeds. But unfortunately, it's a little bit windy to do it, uh, so my results would be a little skewed. But it looks like we may have a chance this weekend. <laughs> That's really awesome. That's kind of citizen science at its most basic. That's pretty neat. Sticking a radar gun in a trash can to clock raindrops. I love it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so uh, you guys go check it out and let me know if you have anything else you want me to shoot with the radar, because... <laughs> We can do it. Uh, That's what we love to do, shoot stuff with radars. <laughs> <laughs> but other than that, uh, you know, the thing they actually pay me to do, I've been working on uh, trying to write a paper. Uh, so have I. I just finished my thesis, and so I've been trying to take it out of the thesis mode that the university requires and put it into submission mode. I imagine that's what you're doing as well. Oh, uh, well, I'm actually just writing the paper itself right now, and then I'll reverse it back into thesis mode. Uh, so this brings up a topic, because I know that 
you and I will have different technology workflows. So what are you using to write your paper? So I use a combination of tools. Uh, the actual end paper comes out in LaTeX or LaTeX, which is its own debate in the nerd community, I believe. <laughs> yes, it is. <laughs> uh, I say LaTeX. Uh, so I do all the final formatting and typesetting in LaTeX. <laughs> and then I write in just plain text markdown, actually, when I'm coming up with the paper text initially. What do you use? Uh, well, I'm a word user all the way from start to finish. And I think that word is really powerful. And if only I knew how to harness its power, I could probably take over the world. But <laughs> as you've said before, I don't know if anyone knows how to harness all the power of word yet. <laughs> but I'm interested to hear about alternatives. So like LaTeX, which is also how I say it. <laughs> So, yeah, and I'm interested to see a little bit more about Word. To me, it's always seemed like kind of a maze of menus. <laughs> and it never really has been worth it for me to navigate those. Uh, and also when I'm in it, that's one reason I write in plain text initially, is I, I get distracted by what font do I want to use? How do I want to <laughs> format it? Uh, oh, should I underline this? Should I italicize this? It's really a lot better for me to have a distraction-free writing environment and not worry about formatting until after I have the text down. I don't know about you. I've never thought of it that way, but the amount of conversations that you and I have had about fonts <laughs> makes me think that maybe I should rethink my workflow because I have over 10,000 fonts installed on my Windows laptop. <laughs> <laughs> over 10,000 fonts? You, Do you have any hard drive space uh, left? You never know what you're going to need, John. <laughs> You never know when you need Calibria versus Cambria versus OK Corral, which is my current favorite. Not so good for scientific writing, though. <laughs> I, I think we all know you do your presentations in Comic Sans. <laughs> Just to make everyone mad. You're, you're correct. <laughs> um, so, but yeah, so uh, have you ever used Markdown before? Uh, no, I don't even know what you're saying right now. <laughs> all right. So Markdown is just a way to format plain text, I guess is the best way to describe it. Uh, so you use things like the pound sign, or as I recently learned, it was originally called the Octothorpe. <laughs> oh, I like that much more than hashtag. I think we should right. start that right now. Octothorpe revolution. Right. <laughs> so you can use the Octothorpe to define uh, kind of the heading level. So... One pound sign is a big heading, two is a smaller, three is a yet smaller, that kind of thing. Okay. Asterisks or bullet points. So there's all these formatting guidelines, but you just type it in plain text, you know, no formatting, no anything. And then you pass it to a program that parses the markdown and actually generates this really nice looking document. Uh, what, what kind of, so what is, it markdown is its own program, I'm guessing, or is it just something that you run your plain text file through? Yes, it's something you run in your plain okay. text file through. Okay. Uh, so there's apps like Marked or online services that do it. And that's actually how I do the show notes, is I write them in Markdown, and then I generate an HTML page from that, and that goes onto the website. Wow, so it can generate, it's not just putting out an, another text file, it can put out anything you want? Yeah, it can put out HTML, PDFs, JPEGs, uh, you can write extensions to make it do all kinds of fun stuff. Wow, okay, so when you first said that you do your plain text editing, and then run it through something else. I thought that sounded like a waste of time, but I guess I can see where that kind of workflow would actually be good if you're not just 
constantly outputting the exact same file, right? Like if you'd want to do the web page or another text file. Right, and you never know really when you're going to get an idea or what platform you're going to be on. Uh, maybe you're on a Windows machine, maybe you're on a Mac, maybe you're on your phone. Oh, okay. Mm -hmm. uh, so yeah, you can type a note in Markdown on your phone, email it to yourself, go back, drop it into your document, and it's done. That's really cool. I've never thought about using that, especially as, I mean, it sounds like the Markdown workflow is also pretty similar to coding, right? I mean... Yeah, you could say it's similar to coding. Uh, I know it's really big in the kind of computer programmer geeky world. <laughs> but is it easy enough for me to use? Because that's what I'm interested in. <laughs> it's easy enough for anybody to use. We'll put a link in to the Daring Fireball Guide to Markdown. Uh, <laughs> Excellent. There's all kinds of little flavors of it. But no, it's actually really easy to use. Oh, that's pretty cool. Um, that's sort of word is kind of, you know, the official the official sort of um, word processing thing that we all use. It's kind of cool to see that there's actually alternatives that are also easy. Because I think word is pretty intuitive. I agree it's distracting, but to just sit down and write something for someone that's not computer savvy, wouldn't you agree? Word's pretty easy to use. Word's pretty easy to use, and it has some features that I actually really like. That's um, shocking to hear you say. Please continue. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I know. Uh, I am notoriously harsh on uh, some Pacific Northwest-based software companies. <laughs> but it the way that they do track changes in Word is actually pretty spectacular. Uh, and that's something that I've certainly used a lot because, as I said earlier, I'm working on my I've been working on my thesis, and so we pass it back and forth between my advisor and myself, and we track changes and. The good thing is his handwriting is awful. <laughs> so <laughs> words track changes has made it super easy and a lot faster when I don't have to decipher his ridiculous handwriting, whether he wanted me to say rocks or ricks or rubble, I couldn't even <laughs> tell. So word track changes is fabulous. Right. And have you ever used or even knew about the merge feature in Word? Uh, no. It sounds suspiciously like concatenating. Is that what I'm thinking it is? <laughs> it, it's similar. I didn't know about this until this week, actually, when somebody showed me. They had the same document that had been edited by two people. Oh. And it instead of actually going through and accepting changes on right. one and then looking at the other and manually bringing changes over, they could bring both of them into Word and say, merge changes. No. So could you still tell who said what? Yes, it had in the, oh, the bubble wow. that comes up. It had who did it and what time they did it and all of that. And then you could see if the same person changed the same thing. It would say, okay, well, which one of these do you want to accept? And that kind oh, of thing. That's, it was actually really interesting. That's excellent. Yeah, because I know when I was finishing, I passed it all to my thesis committee. And so because I'm not tech savvy, I just had two computers open <laughs> and was mer merging <laughs> the files by hand. Uh, but that sounds like that's kind of what I was talking about earlier. I feel like if you can... Word is really simple to use, but then there's this median level of um, learning curve. So you can use it at one level, and it's super useful. But then if you put in the time and take it to the next level, I think Word's really powerful, just like what you just said. Right. And I know there are things that it does that drives me crazy, where it tries to place something or auto-outline, and I don't want it to if I knew what to do 
okay, maybe it wouldn't drive me so crazy. But that takes me to LaTeX. <laughs> All right, let's hear about it. I do have to say, <laughs> right. I do have to say that I don't understand why you hate Word because Clippy is gone now. So <laughs> Clippy is gone. Uh, <laughs> anyway, let, so back for, to LaTeX. For anybody that doesn't remember, <laughs> Clippy was the little paperclip that would pop up and animate in the corner of your screen to distract you from what you were doing. <laughs> he was trying to be helpful. I, he was not a distraction. He just wanted to help you. And <laughs> Clippy was not a help, but... <laughs> <laughs> no. He's in the big so, paperclip in the sky now. <clears throat> yes. So in LaTeX, it's really more of a, almost a programming language, I would say, because you write your document with these special commands and formatting, and then you actually do kind of the equivalent of compiling it. Uh, you okay. run it through a LaTeX interpreter, and in the end, you get a PostScript or a PDF file out. So uh, what does the interface look like? If I sit down to use LaTeX then... Because those words are probably scary for Luddites like myself. <laughs> <laughs> so you can use different packages. There are some things like MacTech that has all these really nice programs where it's a text editor and then it has a play button. And you click the play button and it goes through and does all of the things that it needs to to compile your document. Okay, so the, com the compiler is, in, is within the software that you use to write your text. Right. Or you can do it kind of the more traditionalist, hardcore, you know, Linux graybeard way, <laughs> where you write it in your favorite text editor of choice. Uh, you could even do it in Emacs if you were so inclined, or Vi, or whatever. And you would save it, and then from the command line, call LaTeX okay. uh, to run on that file. Okay. So you could just take a regular so, text file and do this with... Right. Okay. And it's sometimes useful to do that when you get really complicated documents. Uh, for example, one of my uh, papers that I'm working on right now, I actually have different parts of the document in different LaTeX files, and then I have a different file that has all of my references in it, and they're linked together in this really uh, not-so-great way right now. <laughs> so I actually have a little shell script that goes through and calls all these things in the right order to compile the document. Okay, what's, that, what's the advantage in that, then? So that sounds really scary, but it actually didn't take me very long to do. And it's not necessary at all. Uh, I did it this way because of how many people we have working on this paper okay, right now. Okay, okay. Um, the thing that I really like about it, though, is I just put all the references, I copy them straight out of papers or whatever your favorite reference manager is, into this uh, latex.bib file. And then when I compile my document, it goes through, looks for all of the tags in there, and says, okay, he cited these papers, go grab those references, format them to fit this uh, style file guide, and then shove them in at the end of the paper. So you've written the style guide for it so it knows just what to do? The publisher did. Ooh, that's even better. <laughs> Most publishers have LaTeX templates that you can download and you can actually just say, okay, here's my references, here's my text, compile. And so you could take that and if you submitted it to a certain journal, but then you want to submit it to your school alumni newsletter, you can take those references and just change how they're, how they're output, right? Right. So you can go from the full, you know, 
blah et al. 2007 in parentheses reference to the regular nature number referencing. Wow. Uh, so that seems really useful. <laughs> it's really useful, and it's even it's scriptable to a level that I cannot comprehend. <laughs> Which I, seems I, odd. <laughs> I know of people that actually have the figures in their paper uh, are generated at compile time of the LaTeX document. Wow. So when I write a paper, all of my figures, which this is putting the cart ahead of the horse a little bit here, <laughs> but all of my figures are a script that you can run. So if somebody wants to reproduce a figure, they can go download the script, download my data, run it, and boom, there's the figure that's in the paper. Which is super awesome for open source science, but that's for later. <laughs> right. But I actually just take those figures in the end, put them in the folder, and then reference them. Uh, because a lot of my figures take a long time to make. They have a lot of data, and it takes a while for the script to run. Uh, but I know some people, especially in math, that just have LaTeX go out and generate their figure every time they compile the paper. So if they change an equation in the paper, it changes the equation that gets plotted in the figure, and oh, everything's done. That seems like it cuts down on a whole lot of backtracking that I think was historically done, right? You know, you change one little coefficient, and now you've got to redraft eight figures, which could be time consuming. Right. So that's one advantage. And while we're on figures, can we talk about figure numbering? <laughs> okay. Uh, where are you going with this? Figures go one, two, three, right? Right. So figures go one, two, three. <laughs> but in LaTeX, you assign each figure, each table, each equation, a tag or a reference. So for example, I could say uh, run plot for an experiment. And then every time I want to reference that figure in my paper, I just type run plot with a site tag around it or a ref tag around it, excuse me. Okay. And then if I move that figure around, when you compile your LaTeX document, it automatically will number uh. all the figures and put in the text and everything. So I have to say that is super helpful, but I hate to tell you, Word does the same thing. Really? Um, so our graduate college that I was a part of until just recently gives us templates to write our theses. You don't have to use them, but you can. And one of the things that they've set up in there, these people who are masters of word, is auto-numbering of both your figures and your tables. Because within the thesis, you have a list of figures, much like you do when you're submitting something for publication, and then you have a list of tables, and then you have just your regular table of contents. And so if you insert them in the correct way, it will link to the table of contents. And if you decide hmm. to move them, all you go back and do is update the table of contents. It updates the numbers in the table, but it also updates the figure captions as well. This is beyond my mastery of it yet, but... I know that a lot of people who can master it, that's really powerful too. But it sounds like LaTeX has been doing the same thing for a while. <laughs> right. And there's a lot of LaTeX features that we're not even talking about. Like you can make uh, slides, presentation slides in LaTeX, for example. So you can take your paper and turn it into slides. That's something that I've never done. I don't really know that I would want to do that. Uh, because it's too much text for me. But I've seen people do it. Oh, okay. All right. So LaTeX is not taking the place of PowerPoint yet? No. Okay. Uh, the thing that no matter what kind of document you're making in LaTeX, 
it always makes clean, beautiful documents. It has it has rules for margins and spacing and the way the characters are spaced if the line ending isn't the exact same length. Things like that that when you're looking at a professionally typeset publication, it's done and you don't notice it, but you notice when somebody makes a poorly formatted document, which I think is relatively easy to do in Word. It, yes, that's super true. And the thing that I don't like about Word, but I understand why it's in there, is all the presets. Right, because right. Word is built so you can literally just sit down and type something and be done with it. But I found the newer Word is kind of not not difficult, but it's cumbersome to go in and reset all the preferences to what I want. I mean, especially I don't want you know eight point one point one five spacing or whatever they have as their preset. And as much as I reset it, um, it just keeps coming back. So. I could see the, in a more advanced user, even a slightly advanced user, could get angry at Word because of those limitations. And the limitations are there to make it easy to use and accessible to everyone, which it totally fulfills that. But right. I never... There's always a trade-off. Exactly, this. exactly. So I never thought of actually going to something else. So that's interesting that LaTeX sort of fulfills a lot of those requirements and it's something I'd never thought about using at all. Right and you don't have to necessarily think about uh, you know you and I could talk about for a while proper kerning in a document. (laughs) Yes we do love our kerning discussions. (laughs) But you don't have to think about that. Uh, LaTeX will take care of most of it for you and make it look really nice. So and the editors love it when you send them a tech file. And that's where I first noticed it was on these uh, websites where you're talking about submitting your papers and it has the optional formats for your submissions. And that's where I first saw LaTeX and thought, what is what is this? So it's kind of cool to hear you talk about how useful it could actually be, even for someone who you know isn't a coder or anything like that. I just assumed I couldn't do it, even though I have rudimentary you know Linux knowledge and stuff. But it sounds like it's not that hard to use. It's not that hard, and really there's a nice introductory guide written up, and if you take that, sit down with a cup of coffee on a Saturday morning, (laughs) by Saturday evening you'll be making really, really gorgeous documents. Wow. Uh, Are you going to put that up on our website? It will be in the show notes. Great. So where can they find that? The show notes and this episode, actually, you can find at don'tpanicgeocast.com. Excellent. Um, So we've covered how we're actually writing our text and a little bit about figures. But if we're not using LaTeX for figures, because I know my publications are going to have a lot of pictures and a lot of graphs that are output from very specific programs. So what's your favorite figure-making software? Uh, oh, wow. <laughs> I, have a, I have a lot of favorite figure-making softwares. <laughs> um, oh, goodness. Use different software for different kinds of plots and... I know that we're going to do a show entirely on figures and figure design. Yes, yes, we are. So this is just the the short rundown. But I, John, I have a confession to make. What's your confession? Uh, I, I'm sorry for my sins, but I've used PowerPoint to make figures before. Oh, <laughs> oh, that hurts. I y- D- did you screenshot the PowerPoint slide? It wasn't that bad. <laughs> <laughs> but I will admit, some of my earlier work 
Yeah, drafted figures straight oh. in PowerPoint. I, I mean, I didn't go so far as to use paint, but I thought about it. <laughs> oh. I will say, as, as penance for my sins, I have learned how to use uh, Illustrator very well. <laughs> right. And that's actually one of my favorite tools for uh, really taking a figure that you get out of another program mm -hmm. and making it that fine publication quality plot that y you want to see, something that is going to be in a nature or science paper. And, th and that's exactly what we use it for because we have our own specialty tools, which I think we're going to talk about here in a little while, but that output figures for us. So these graphs are things that we have to reproduce. You can't just take the raw data and reproduce the graph in your favorite graphing software. You literally just get a picture, but the picture is not suitable for publication. So we always import that into Illustrator and we literally trace that graph. <laughs> but right. the Illustrator output is just beautiful. And it's a steep learning curve, I think. Um, I'm probably going to say that about a lot of software. But <laughs> once you do, it's super high quality, beautiful figures, I think. Yeah, Illustrator really does have a steep learning curve. I'll say that even from kind of a nerdy side. <laughs> but at Penn State, we have a subscription to lynda.com. Oh, yeah, my university has that as well. It's pretty new for us, and I haven't really checked it all out yet. It's, it's really worthwhile. And a lot of their courses, you know, it'll be a couple hour introduction to program X that you want to learn how to use, which is great. But the introduction to Illustrator course, if I remember correctly, is about 23 hours of video. <laughs> well, that makes me feel better about the first time that I used Illustrator. I wanted to make a triangle to show in my class talking about the scientific <laughs> method. And I swear, no hyperbole. It took me eight hours to draw an illustrator <laughs> triangle. <laughs> so, so that makes me feel good that even nerdy people think that programming or uh, illustrator is hard to figure out at first. <laughs> and but once you get over that learning curve, I will say I use it for everything. Yes, yes, it does simple, easy stuff too. Not just you know, not just these intricate um, graphs of time versus temperature curves and everything else. Like, it does super easy things. Right. And I've even used it to make cards or, you know, personal stuff. You, wait, wait, wait. You use it for scrapbooking? Is that what you just said, John? <laughs> that is not what I just said, <laughs> But that's a good uh, idea. <laughs> right. And you can even do some things which... Once again, this is something that we'll talk about in the future, I know. But I can draw things and then uh, export them out of Illustrator and then extrude them in 3D and 3D print them. Wow. It will take those kind of files. That's fabulous. I never thought about doing that. Uh, but Illustrator does have the disadvantage of being a paid program. And recently they right. went to the Adobe Creative Cloud. Yes. Uh, my university did that as well. And so since I'm at a university... It's no big deal for me, but man, I hate stuff that I have to pay yearly for. I mean, that's in terms of apps or software or anything, and that's what Adobe did, but they have such a great product. I see why they did it. Yeah, and I mean, there was a lot of bootlegging of that software, I know. Uh, yes. <laughs> I, the, the student rate isn't too bad. Mm -hmm. I believe it's about a dollar a day. 
Okay, that's not bad, I guess. I mean, if you're a poor student, that's, you know, five packs of ramen, but... <laughs> right. <laughs> uh, and there are alternatives to Illustrator as well. Uh, well, hit me. I don't know what they are. Besides paint, obviously. So there's one that I'm just investigating now called Inkscape. Okay. You can go to their website and download it. It's cross-platform. Okay. That's and always it's good. it's basically an Illustrator clone that's open source. Really? But how, how well right. does it work, though? We all know, you know, clones can do bad things, right? <laughs> right. Clones can do bad things. And I haven't used it enough to have a strong opinion yet. Okay. I will say the thing that drove me nuts in the 10 minutes that I was playing with it last night was I know every keyboard shortcut for all the tools I use in Illustrator. Uh, so I don't have to click the menus. Uh-huh. And they're different. Oh, okay. Well, they probably have to be. Right. Uh, that does kill me a little bit, though, because it really slowed me down trying to do anything. Okay. Yeah, I get that. Um, again, you know, it's all about the learning curve in any software that you're going to use. Right. And it's a little bit, I'm not going to say tricky to install, but you have to, it's not all wrapped in one nice installer. So it'll say, okay, go download this X Windows kit ah. and install that and then download this and install that. And if you want to put a plugin in, okay, go download it and copy it into this directory. So it's a little bit, uh, it's a little bit not user friendly if you want to get into the power user features of it. But the point is it doesn't cost anything. So... <laughs> <laughs> right. And if you are thinking about making your poster or your figure in PowerPoint, <laughs> please go download Escape. Uh, yeah, okay. I get the point. It's not the best thing to use anymore. <laughs> but it's also speaking of not the best thing to use. And this is less of a figure thing and more of a uh, poster thing. We talked about these posters last week that we present at conferences. I've heard of some people using Photoshop for posters. What do you think of that? I've never done it. Uh, I've always made my posters in Illustrator, but I know we have somebody here that actually uses InDesign. Really? Uh, right. I've never heard of that. So it's in the Creative Cloud as well, and from what I can tell, it was really meant to design things like magazine layouts, newspaper layouts. So it might actually be the right tool. Okay, for that, but maybe not for poster making? Maybe, maybe for poster making. Hmm. I haven't, I haven't ever really learned it, uh, but I do know that some people use it. Some people use Photoshop, and they seem to have some really good-looking posters. Uh, yeah, I guess uh, in my experience, the reason that the people that I know use Photoshop has to do with our ancient printer technology, because Illustrator files are pretty big. Yeah, they they can be pretty big, and there's ways to get around that. A lot of people don't. Uh, don't really have an Illustrator workflow set up, but you can export your Illustrator file as, uh, say, an encapsulated postscript, and then run it through a program called Adobe Distiller. Okay. That will flatten it and do all these wonderful compression things. So your 40 gig EPS or 40 meg, excuse me, EPS <laughs> file is all of a sudden a two or three meg PDF. Okay, so that sounds a lot better. Maybe using. Adobe Distiller with your Adobe Illustrator file isn't going to produce the weirdness that some people have come up with trying to make their PowerPoint into a PDF, PowerPoint poster into a PDF or something like that. Right. I haven't had 
uh, any trouble after I started using that workflow. Okay, so something to think about. Um, I just recently, this last year, actually, embarrassingly enough, I used Illustrator for to make my first poster. And <laughs> I know I got some crap uh, from the people that run the print shop because it didn't want to take that huge Illustrator file. So maybe I'll do this next time, and I won't get so much, so much guff from the printer people, huh? Right, because when they're printing, they don't need each of your layers as a separate thing. They just need the flattened image. Exactly. I uh, didn't even think to use that. That's that's good tech advice. <laughs> <laughs> but there are other tools that people make some really nice figures in, and I can only speak to a couple of these. I don't know. Have you ever heard of uh, Kaleidograph or Igor Pro? Uh, I have heard of Kaleidograph. I haven't, I've seen it used, but I have not used it myself. I've not heard of Igor Pro at all. So Kaleidograph is, I'm not going to say the standard, but it is what a lot of people in my research group use uh, for everything. Okay. And they make some really nice looking plots. And I know the reason that they always cite loving it is when you save the graph as the Kaleida file, the data is embedded with it. So you just send somebody that file oh. and they can open it up and look at your figure and the data is there. So then they can change how it's plotted. Okay, so they could they could use the data themselves. They don't have to rely on redrafting it or just getting raw data. It all comes together. That's kind of cool. Yeah, it all comes together. And it seems to be relatively user-friendly. Uh, we do have a couple of licenses for it floating around in our group. Uh, so maybe I'll try to get one of those and play with it, and we can talk about it in the future. Oh, uh, yeah. Sounds good. I think a lot of what we're going to talk about is definitely going to be how to optimize your figure-making, poster-making, because that's a lot of what we do as research scientists. Right. And Igor Pro is a little bit older program now. I haven't looked at their website in a while to see if it's been updated, but we used it at Oak Ridge National Lab. Okay, when you were an intern there, right? Right, when I interned there. And it really was very efficient with large data sets, you know, talking uh, several million point data sets. It didn't choke like a lot of normal graphing programs did. Right. Uh, so that's why they used it. So no Excel? Is that what you're telling me? No Excel. <laughs> In fact, we used to have a class. This is, again, my... Uh, my distaste for certain software companies, it seems like. Uh, but uh, we had a class here at Penn State for a while called Anything But Excel. <laughs> oh, I think everyone needs to, you know, step outside their comfort zone, but I'm not giving it up yet. I love it. <laughs> <laughs> right. And I, I am having to use some programs now that are Windows-only programs and having to kind of get back into the Windows environment a little bit. And I will say it's not as bad as when I left it. Uh, no, it certainly isn't. I just recently upgraded to Windows 8, and I love it. I really do. Even, and I hate to say this, even Microsoft Explorer is really good. Nope. Wow. Yeah, yeah. It's <laughs> It hurts, but... I'm not going to lie. I've started using it more than Chrome, so. Wow, that that's saying something. It's, it certainly is. But we can talk about this topic for years, right? <laughs> we, we could. And really, I know we were uh, thinking about talking about some of our specialty tools that we're going to use, you know, me in the lab and you in PMAG. But I, I don't think we should bore people with that just yet. <laughs> we will, though. Don't worry, listeners. 
<laughs> we will, and there will be rants about version control and uh, field books and all kinds of stuff coming. That's right, but let's let's move on, huh? <laughs> right. So uh, I, I saw somewhere that there's been maybe a little bit of progress in figuring out what was going on with the mysterious booms that we talked about last week in Oklahoma. That's right. Um, so another explanation, since it seems like it wasn't cold enough for these to be ice-induced breaking earthquakes to cause these booms. So another explanation, which we've dredged up from years ago when these booms have happened before, is thermal inversion. Right. And I think this was uh, talked about back in 1984. That's, that's right. It was the same series of booms was heard sort of in the same place. And they invoked thermal inversion, which is this meteorological phenomenon, which both of us love that, right? I mean, you've got a radar gun and a trash can, so. <laughs> <laughs> but that's true. But uh, why don't you go ahead and explain what we mean by thermal inversion? So it's just like what it sounds like, right? Thermal inversion. Usually as you go up in the atmosphere, it gets colder, but sometimes that doesn't happen. And when the level, uh, when the ground temperature and the air at ground level is colder, it's warmer above it, that's called a thermal inversion, but it does some weird things to sound. It does weird things to uh, everything, really. <laughs> yes, I mean, it does. You can see uh, smoke from smokestacks going up and hitting an inversion and just flattening out. Right. It keeps uh, pollution down at the ground, so it's a really bad thing in that kind of instance because you can't actually lift air up because in order to lift air up, you got to heat it up, right? And so if it's cold at the ground and hot above, it just hangs out there. Right. So do you have any guess? I'm curious. I had to look this up because I didn't know how sensitive the speed of sound is to temperature. You know, I wouldn't, just off the top of my head, I wouldn't have said it was that different. I mean, because they're saying thermal inversion is what caused it, I'm guessing I'm wrong. <laughs> right. So it turns out uh, speed of sound is something like 331.36 meters per second at, you know, carefully defined conditions. Right, exactly. Uh, but the formula for speed of sound is that number plus 0.6067T in Celsius. 0.6 times the temperature? Yes, so a little over half a meter a second per degree Celsius. That's kind of impressive. That's a lot of attenuation of sound in cold air. Right, that's... <laughs> That's an incredible amount. And so it's just like with seismic waves, where they're going to bend into the, the slower media. So if you have a sound wave or an acoustic wave going up, and it hits a warm inversion, it's going to get refracted right back down towards the ground. Is That's super awesome. I mean, I can... So these booms could have been from really far away, and they're just getting bounced around down at ground level. But I could think that could be pretty dangerous in some situations, right? Yeah, uh, not only in terms of you know startling cattle and property damage, but there's an entire book I found out by a guy named Charles D. Ross called Civil War Acoustic Shadows. <gasps> that sounds super neat. So Civil War, I'm guessing that has something to do with cannon fire and thermal inversions? <laughs> it does. It has thermal <laughs> inversions, wind, all kinds of really weird and wonderful meteorological uh, influences on sound propagation. And I'll put a link uh, in the show notes that is both to the book, which you can buy on Amazon, it is out of print, or he wrote a summary article in 1999 about it. And looking through that, uh, 
there's all kinds of really interesting cases that he examines. And there's one uh, about the Seven Pines battle. Okay. And so this is a quote from that article. It said, The battle, silent to Johnson, two miles from the front, was clearly heard by citizens of Richmond ten miles to the west and Federals far to the east. So they had no idea there was a battle and they were much closer to it than other people that were hearing it. Wow, that's unbelievable. I wonder if... I wonder if people try to think about using this. I know a lot of meteorological uh, theory and meteorological forecasting came out of the wars. I wonder if they've ever thought about these thermal inversions now. Yeah, I'm sure. And with things like sodar, uh, that definitely influences the sound propagation. Right, exactly. Uh, you, like, can, you can get back temperature proxies. And you've got a battle raging and you don't even know it or I'm guessing you could probably use this to your advantage to trick the enemy to thinking there's more of you than there are right absolutely <laughs> I mean you can get this really nice amplification uh, so one thing that once we're done with the uh, the radar in the trash can <laughs> uh, maybe it'd be something fun to look at setting up some speakers and a microphone at two ends of a football field and just shooting sound over the course of a day or two, you know, once an hour, and actually profiling when this inversion layer develops, uh, say overnight or in the morning, uh, getting the sound profile. Uh, that sounds like a super cool experiment that we could do. And uh, there's a lot of there's a lot of air traffic here in Oklahoma, so I could even see where these booms were, you know, even sonic booms from aircraft that weren't necessarily right overhead, but that boom could stay bouncing around in that inversion for a while, right? Right. And it could really, I guess, be a problem for anybody that lives close to a noise source. I mean, it could be a quarry, an airport, a factory, uh, a train depot, if there is, you know, such a thing. And, but if you had <laughs> if you had freight trains going through your town, uh, you know, you might be able to hear them quite a bit better at night. Oh, that's really cool. I don't know if this was the cause of those booms, but I imagine it is a very plausible explanation, much more so than the cryoseisms that we talked about last week. Right. So if anybody else has any other ideas, definitely send them in to us uh, and where can they we'll get a, talk about them. Where can they get a hold of us on the Twitter sphere and out in the interwebs, John? <laughs> All right. So you can tweet to us. We're at Don't Panic Geo. Go to the website, don'tpanicgeocast.com. Or you can email us, show at don'tpanicgeocast.com. And I would like to... See if we can get anybody to send us an audio comment. So you've got all of these, you know, apps on your phone, and the iPhone has an app on it, and the Voice Memos app. Uh, just record your thought and email us that file, and we'll play it and discuss it. Awesome. I mean, we are sort of a technology show, so that'd be super awesome. <laughs> and they can find us on iTunes now too, right? Yes, we're on iTunes, so you can search for us there or any podcast app that uses the iTunes feed will get us. And it would really help us out if you go there and write a little review what you think of the show. Yes. Because that's how they uh, rank us in their search engine optimization schemes. Please do that. John and I certainly love talking a lot about geosciences and technology. <laughs> and we hope that you guys like listening to us. And we want to hear your conversation. You're part of the conversation, too. But that brings us around to the final part, right? Fun Paper Friday. It is time for Fun Paper Friday. What are we going to talk about today, Shannon? Well, we're going to talk about something outside of both of our wheelhouses, but it's certainly inside what we as science nerds love and that we know every other science nerd loves too, and it's astronomy. Um, 
there was some really cool stuff that happened this week, and it has to do with technology, right? So we observed this thing called a Blitzar. What's that? Is <laughs> that is a fascinating name? <laughs> it's. I mean, you should be an astronomer just because of these cool names. But tell us what a Blitzar is, John. <laughs> so from what I can tell. And this paper is linked. It's called A Real-Time Fast Radio Burst, Polarization Detection, and Multi-Wavelength Follow-Up. <laughs> uh, so to clarify that a little bit, uh, the basic idea was these blitzars are uh, millisecond timescale bursts of radio energy. And it's massive amounts of energy. Uh, we're talking about many hundreds to millions of years of sun output. Wow, but in a millisecond, not not over hundreds of <laughs> right. thousands of years. <laughs> wow, okay. Uh, and so they said that it's probably this obviously large source, and they have no idea where it is, but through some of their calculations, they can say that it's up to 5.5 billion light-year distance. Wow, um, that is really far away, much farther than we can see. And so we're listening to these things with these big radio telescopes, and then you get this big burst of energy. But we've seen these before. So what's different this week? Like, we've observed them for almost 10 years now. Right. So they were first found in, I think, 2007. But this was the first real-time detection. Everything before this has been, uh, okay, we're looking through data weeks to months to years after it's collected. And then, oh, there's a blitzar. Okay. So there really couldn't be any immediate follow-up. You couldn't... Uh, look for other things or have other radio telescopes. So there's no way you could, like, point the rest of your radio telescope array at that area of the sky or anything in real time because this is, you know, just like you said, a couple months later when the graduate student is there working their butts (laughs) off (laughs) analyzing this data, and they find this cool thing, but there's nothing to be done about it because it happened six months ago. Right. And so this was a kind of a new system that they said they had their detection threshold set a little bit low, so maybe they would get some false alarms, but they'd rather not miss an actual event. Right, yeah. Uh, But within a minute of it happening, all of the PIs had emails (laughs) from the system. (laughs) That's got to be the most exciting email to get, right? Like, to know that this technology, in real time, you're listening to energy from 5.5 billion light years away, and you just heard it, like... You just caught it and got this email about it. How cool is that? Right. And so they actually got people at other facilities to turn their radio telescopes towards this area of the sky as well and look for any after signals. Oh, awesome. Okay. So whatever this big burst of energy came from, some kind of star process, right? Now you've got all over the world, you can have other people pointing their arrays that direction. And now you're using technology in real time super quickly to try to get, you know, 10 times more data than you would have had initially, right? Right. And even just having the automatic detection system and all this recording going on, uh, triggered by this detection system, they were able to say some things that we've never been able to say before, like what the polarization of the radio signal was, which turned out to be really important. Really? How? How how does that change what we've seen before? Right. So normally uh, you can think of a regular linearly polarized electromagnetic wave propagating through space. Right. Uh, You can think of lots of potential sources for a simple linear polarized emission. Basically Uh, anything out there, right? (laughs) Right, basically anything. Uh, This one turned out to be circularly polarized. And we haven't seen that a lot. 
No, and so uh, that just basically means that it's vibrating in two orthogonal axes. Right, to be able to catch that, wow. Right, so they're able to catch that, and that means that some weird process happened that we either don't know that generated this circularly polarized signal, or maybe it passed through an area of a really, really strong magnetic field and underwent Faraday rotation. And so it so became... this linear polarized signal became circular. Oh, wow. So we don't know if it was originally that or if it became distorted, because you can imagine 5.5 billion light years away, it probably went right. through a lot of weird crap out there in the universe, right? <laughs> and even you know, here on Earth, we see dispersion of seismic waves or ocean waves, and we can say things about the path they took based on that dispersion relation. Uh, the same thing happened to this radio signal. Based on the dispersion relation, the amount of blueness in the signal, how much of the high-frequency energy got here early on, uh, they're able to say something about the density of the interstellar medium. Wow. Because a, a, a denser medium would cause greater dispersion. Which is, I know, where a lot of astronomy is focused on now. It's less of the things that we can see and hear and more the weird stuff that we can't see and hear. Right. Right. Uh, so, no, it was a really cool paper and I think definitely deserves the Fun Paper Friday designation. <laughs> Excellent. Yeah, we certainly love... A good, exciting use of technology to make something that we've seen before in the past make it even cooler today. Because of this technology, they saw this stuff in real time, and maybe it's going to spark a lot of interest, and maybe it's going to spark some ideas about the interstellar medium and what it's made of, right? Right. And maybe we can even talk about in the future auto-triggering and auto-notification about earthquakes. Uh, right. Um, that is certainly near and dear to both of our hearts. So that is something that a lot of people would be interested in seeing as opposed to going to check the website every time that you think there was an earthquake, but just automatically being told. Sounds like something simple that we will have lots to say about. Right. So I think we probably better wrap it up this week. Have a great week, Shannon. Hey, you too. Stay out of that snow, okay? Or go right. into it, whatever you want. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Thanks for listening, everybody. Thank you. Any opinions, findings, and conclusions or recommendations expressed in this show are solely ours and do not necessarily reflect the views of 